All right, let's take the Word of God again this morning and turn to John chapter number 19. John chapter number 19. And we're going to be looking today at verses 28 through 37. And I want us to just read verse number 30. And we'll find our subject for our text this morning. John 19, verse number 30. The Word of God says, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Of course, our subject today is the phrase, It is finished. Those three words represent the substitutionary sacrifice for sinners made by Jesus Christ. It is finished. There is only really one word that describes the word finish. Uh, In the Greek, it is one word, but in our English language, it is three words. It is finished. Those three words remind us that these are the most important words that have ever been spoken. The depth of the words, the depths of the phrase, are almost immeasurable. In other words, it's very difficult for us to really get to the height and the breadth and the width of what Jesus was saying. Because he wasn't just saying it as a generality. He wasn't just saying it is finished as a means of, okay, this is what needs to happen now. No, he was announcing this particular phrase with regard to his full satisfaction before the Father. The Father, at that moment, was fully satisfied with Christ's work for his people. It is finished. It's a ground, a solid, sturdy, everlasting ground of comfort. Those three words are the most comforting words of the church. It is finished. Finished for good. Finished for eternity. Not finished for now. Not finished for the time being. Not finished for 100 years. But finished for all of eternity. We're talking about the God of all comfort in our Bible study on every Sunday. But these are also comforting words. It is finished. There's not another cent that can be paid to this. There's not another single work that can be added to it. There's not another single work of righteousness that can be added to the word finished. The word finished means to be complete. But in this context, it would not be complete without satisfaction. In other words, Jesus Christ, as that perfect substitutionary satisfaction for sinners, was found to have satisfied completely and fully the demands of His Father. Now let's think about this for a moment. The amount of debt, sin debt, you and I owe. How much did we owe in order for the Lord to be able to say, it is finished? If we were to just take a single snapshot of our lives from this week, about the sin in our life this week, that would not even be a drop in the ocean to compare the amount of sin debt Jesus Christ was taking on for us. 
And yet, we understand that those who believe in Christ because of these words, it is finished, are the very words which now grant us access to God the Father, to the very throne of grace. It is finished is one of seven sayings, what we'll refer to as the seven most recognized sayings of the cross that Jesus spoke. John, in the book of John, records three of those. But I want to go over these seven sayings of our Lord on the cross. In Luke 23, 34, I'm just going to give you the reference and I'm going to give you the saying. Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. In Luke 23, 43, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Or today, rather, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. John 19, 26 through 47, woman, behold thy son. Matthew 27, 46, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? John 19, 28, I thirst. John 19, 30, it is finished. And then Luke 23, 46, father, into thy hands, I commend my spirit. So of these seven sayings, each one of them represents an important work, the work that Christ finished, the work that Christ performed. But it is this saying, this, this phrase, it is finished, that declared that Jesus Christ's work was fully accomplished. Now you'll notice with me in our text in John 19, beginning there in verse 28, after this... Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. So the Lord's work that He was given to do was fully accomplished. What that meant is that Jesus had not only honored the law in His earthly life, but he is now honoring the demands in his suffering and death, even under the wrath of God. He's fulfilling and being obedient to what the Father required. He's under the wrath of God because of the sins of his people. But yet, Isaiah 53 had told us that Jesus, this Messiah, would fully satisfy God's justice. Here's what it says in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he, that's Christ, hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ accomplished and fully satisfied the demands of a righteous God. But he also says in our text that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. In other words, Jesus saying the phrase, I thirst, was also a direct fulfillment of Scripture. It was a fulfillment of prophecy. That reference takes us back to Psalm 22 in verse number 15. Psalm 22, verse 15, I believe that we, uh, we looked at this verse last week. 
And this is a psalm of David, but it is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that also is a type or a picture of Christ. It says this, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. In Psalm 69, verse 21, again, regarding our Lord's thirst or our Lord's um, uh, desire for these things, Psalm 69, verse 21, says, They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. So the Lord's saying of I thirst was a fulfillment of the Scriptures. He cried out, I thirst. And we understand that that thirst has also throughout Scripture is used as a reference to the man in Luke 16, the rich man who is in hell who asked for a drop of water to cool his tongue. But it's also reference to what Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4.14 about the water of life. Thirsty for the water of life. So Christ here is accomplishing, satisfying the justice of a righteous God, but is also fulfilling the Scripture. Now we see as a response to Jesus crying out, I thirst, he says in verse 29, Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. Now, it seems quite strange that in all the pain and all the agony that Jesus Christ would have been enduring, remember, He has been nailed to a cross. Uh, He has already been scourged. He's already been plated with a crown of thorns. It's interesting that the agony He cries out with is, I thirst. It's the only pain He actually mentions, which is interesting to me. He doesn't talk about the pain of the thorns. He doesn't talk about the pain of the nails in his hands and his feet. But he does reference, I thirst. Now there's a lot of opinion on this, and I'm going to give you my thought on I thirst. And, and there might, this might be a stretch, and again, I'm not dogmatically claiming this as Bible authority. I'm just giving you from the study of the Word. To me, the phrase, I thirst, suggests the most simple human need. To thirst. We take it for granted. Uh, each and every day, we get up, you open a refrigerator, you take a bottle of water, uh, maybe go to a, a dispenser of some sort, and before you're ever thirsty, most times, you are, you are taking in that water. Yet Jesus, here in His humanity, remember, He's dying in His humanity that He might be a substitute for us as sinners. He cries out the simplest of agonies, thirst. A person in such agony, you would have thought, would have mentioned all of them. Yet He singles out this one prophecy. Now, we do know that he said it based upon what we just saw in Psalms, that he is fulfilling Scripture. But it's interesting to me still that that simple thirst is what he mentions. You'll notice that as he cried out this saying, I thirst, he is offered vinegar. 
The Bible says there's a vessel, some kind of a bowl, some kind of a way to contain it. And they filled a sponge with vinegar. Now this vinegar, according to historical accounts, would have been a, what's referred to as a sour wine. Uh, it, was, it was a Roman soldier's drink. And it says that they filled a sponge with it. They put it, on a, they put it upon hyssop, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Other accounts talk about that they, they put it on a reed and they dab it over his parched mouth and lips. And you'll notice in just a moment that after, in verse 30, after he receives that vinegar, it's right after he receives that vinegar that he responds with the phrase, it is finished. Now, a little bit about this wine, this vinegar that was being offered. Uh, this was very common in the Jews, uh, Jews uh, way of when they would uh, stone somebody for blasphemy, uh, they would offer a vinegar that was mixed with things. And it, what its intent was, was to try to, uh, if you use the expression, uh, stupefy the, the person being executed. It, it was to kind of put them in a state of uh, not fully understanding what was going on. And yet we know that during all of this time, Christ is fully aware of what's going on. Uh, this was not being done per se as a means of compassion, uh, but yet it was being offered nonetheless. Now there's an important distinction that needs to be made here about the hyssop. Uh, we could spend some time on the vinegar. We could, I'm going to talk about the sponge here in just a moment, but uh, the hyssop is really vitally important. What is hyssop? Well, you'll, you'll recall that in Psalm 51, one of David's psalms of repentance, uh, David references hyssop uh, as a means of cleansing. As a matter of fact, hyssop was used in the means of cleansing a leper. But David prayed in Psalm 51, 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop was also used in the sprinkling of blood under the law. So it's introduced here with a purpose. It is a means of cleansing. It is a means of the sprinkling of the blood. It is something that is not just given uh, as a side note, but that there is a cleansing that's taking place here as Jesus Christ is on the cross. Now it's interesting that the word sponge is there. Uh, oftentimes, I think I mentioned this in our Bible study this morning, we tend to think in modern day terms. Uh, this is not a sponge that you would clean your dishes with or a sponge that you would clean the car with. This sponge is actually a soft, uh, porous marine substance. It's actually a substance that's found in the ocean. And it was readily obtained in the Mediterranean. In other words, this was something they could easily get. But this was not a sponge, like a car sponge. And this this, is, this word only occurs in the accounts of the crucifixion in Matthew, Mark, and John. One commentator put it this way. Again, this doesn't make this more powerful than anything else than what you're seeing here. But he, he spoke about this, the, the, the importance of the sponge. And he said, the sponge is the very lowest form of animal life. In other words, there is nothing lower than the sponge. It is simply a, 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 a sea substance that is often found on the bottom of rocks at the bottom of the sea. 
Now, I thought that was pretty fascinating. I thought, this is interesting. Here is this, this lowest animal life being offered to the very King of kings and the Lord of lords, the highest of all life. Jesus Christ is being offered the lowest of life, and yet we see such a picture here. The sponge is being lifted up, had been dipped in the, the vinegar and hyssop, sponge lifted up to the king of glory and to, as a means of refreshing those parched lips. And yet, you think about us, and you think about how in our sin, how very low we are, and how very much Jesus Christ took on us. You know, there's, a, there's some parallels there. But we know that Jesus, as He was satisfying not only His Father's demands, but He was fulfilling the Scriptures. There's also four specific things that He was also completing. And I want to look at those this morning. Number one, He was accomplishing or finishing the whole will of God with regard to redemption. The whole will of God with regard to redemption. Hebrews chapter 10 verse number 7 gives us a little bit of insight as to the full will of God with regard to redemption. Hebrews chapter 10 verse number 7. Hebrews 10 verse number 7. The Bible says, Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written to me, to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Here it is, once for all. So Jesus Christ finished the whole will of God with regard to redemption. Number two, Jesus Christ finished the whole work His Father had given Him to do. The whole work that His Father had given Him to do. 1 Timothy 1, chapter 1, verse 15. 1 Timothy 1, verse number 15. The Apostle Paul writing to Timothy says these words, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. The whole work the Father gave to the Son was to come into the world to save sinners. He completed the work. He finished it. Number three, and often overlooked, Jesus Christ finished the work of the Levitical law, all the types, and all the ceremonies. So with His 
with his death, and we read that in just a few moments ago in Hebrews 10. We'll turn back there and go on just a little bit further. He finished the entire work of the Levitical law, all the types, all the ceremonies, everything associated with that. Jesus Christ finished it. Hebrews 10, verse number 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, and every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering... He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So the entirety of the Levitical law, everything the law was picturing, all the types, all the ceremonies, he finished it. And then fourthly, the righteousness of God was performed, perfected, and imputed to all believers. In other words, Jesus Christ on the cross did not make people savable or make salvation possible, he actually saved them. Now that's an important distinction because Jesus Christ, when he cried out, it is finished, was not saying, okay, it is finished. Now I'm giving man the opportunity to be saved. No, he's saying, I have finished the work of redemption. I have finished all the work the father has given me to do. I have fulfilled and finished all the work of the Levitical law, all the ceremonies, all the types. And by that righteousness, has been imputed to those who would believe. We see primarily in the book of Romans, chapter number 3, the Apostle Paul deals with this picture of righteousness. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. The Bible tells us, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, It saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law was manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference." For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So it was Jesus Christ himself that performed what the law required. You're there in Romans 3. Go to Romans 10 and look at verse number 4. Romans 10, verse number 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone 
that believeth. Christ is the end, finished, the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. The law can do nothing else but reveal sin and pronounce condemnation on the sinner. Jesus Christ is the end of the law because the law to the sinner always will reveal our sinfulness and it will always pronounce condemnation. But what Jesus did is he finished the demands or met the requirements. He put an end to that law. And of course, we know 2 Corinthians 5.21, at least I hope that's a verse that is burned in our heart. I think it describes the entirety of the imputed righteousness of God. Someone asks you, uh, why do you believe in the righteous, imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ? 2 Corinthians 5.21 shows us that. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So Christ accomplished, he finished, he performed, he perfected, and he imputed his righteousness to the believer when he said it is finished. Now, what was the proof of that? What was the proof that he finished and accomplished all he came to do? His resurrection. When he rose from the grave, that was a proof, that was the evidence, that was all that was required to see that he had accomplished everything that was prophesied he would do. Here's what it says, don't turn there, just listen, Acts 17, 31, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Now that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. That's the proof, that's the evidence that when Jesus Christ pronounced it is finished, it is accomplished, all these things were done. Salvation, eternal life is the gift of God. Not of works, which any man should boast, but through the person and through the work of our substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. When he said it is finished, he was announcing, I have finished the work that I was given to do. I have accomplished the redemption for the sheep in which the Father hath given to me. We learned that in our early studies in the book of John. The great hymn, O Happy Day, simply has this line, "'Tis done, the great transaction is done. I am my Lord's and He is mine." Nothing else needed to be added, nor could anything be added to a finished work. Now notice back in our text in John, as we continue this narrative, Jesus, we begin to see the, His death upon the cross. We're now on the doorstep. The sponge has been lifted to His mouth. Jesus received the vinegar, and He said, It is finished and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. What is significant about this? Well, the reality is it is not that he died and his head fell forward, but rather as he's living, he bows his head. The bowing of the head, notice, came before he gave up the ghost. Now that's important. Order matters. 
Because the bowing of the head was a sign of resignation to his Father's will. In other words, Jesus is hanging on the cross. He has received the vinegar. And the Bible says that he cries out, it is finished, bows his head, and then he gives up the ghost. Now this is important because people that say they killed him, Jesus Christ gave up the ghost, but he bowed his head, which was a sign of resignation to his father's will. To give up the ghost is to give up or to yield up the spirit that dwelt in his body. This is a powerful truth that we read and we see and we need to understand that Jesus Christ, as he does this, he does it all voluntarily and he does it all willfully. John's narrative goes on to give us more detail about what's taking place here. Verse 31 tells us, The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. Now there's a reference being made here to the Sabbath day, and by this time and by the calendar and the dates and the clocks, this would have now been late afternoon. The Jews' Sabbath day would begin immediately after sunset, so they go and they ask Pilate, or they strongly urge Pilate, to break the legs of the crucified, those that are hanging there on the cross. The intent here was to quicken their death. Without getting into too many details, by the breaking of the leg, the body would no longer be able to support itself. It would collapse, which would put pressure on the lungs, and the person would, would basically, they would suffocate. It would, it would take everything away from them. And this was done because the Sabbath day, the Bible says, was a high day. And according to the Jews' law, in Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 through 23, any dead bodies hanging upon trees would defile their Sabbath and their ceremonies. Now think about the sickening idea behind this. Here you have Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, and they say we want these bodies off the cross because it's defiling our Sabbath day. They're more concerned about defiling the Sabbath day while they're crucifying the Messiah. This is the, this is the, the Pharisee given a, a perfect picture of what a Pharisee is. More concerned about the Sabbath day than the Savior. Now, the Sabbath mattered. We're not discounting that. But these Pharisaical hypocrites, they want to honor their traditions and their laws. Pretty inconsistent if you're the religious leader of the day. They weren't concerned that Christ was being crucified. As a matter of fact, they were probably happy now that Christ was going to be taken away from them, but they were only concerned about not defiling their holy day. The body of Christ, we know, is hanging upon the cross, and we, we're told that the, they broke the legs of the two thieves. But notice... When it comes to verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. Now remember, the breaking of the legs was to hasten death. A very cruel method. Matter of fact, but very effectual. 
But Christ, they don't have to break his legs. Now, again, Christ is hanging in the center between these two thieves. Yet, here Jesus, they don't have to break his legs. Now, don't mistake this for compassion. Because the reality is the Bible said he's already dead. This was not out of compassion, but this was out of God's restraining hand. Because we know that the Bible actually said that his legs would not be broken. And we'll look at that in just a few moments. But his legs would not be broken. That was part of the providential protection and purposes of God. But we do see that something does happen. In verse 34, we see one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. This soldier, we're told, pierces his side, and as he pierces the side of our Lord, blood and water comes out. Now again, lots of science has gone into asking the question, uh, why was there blood and water? And I've heard some of these things. I've even watched some of these accounts who've described uh, why blood and water, where the spear went, and what the purpose was. But I want, you to see, I want you to see there's something much deeper here. There's something much more important than that, than the science. Notice it says and records that he pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. Now, turn over to 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. And I want you to see that there was much more significance to this blood and water than just the science of why did blood and water come out. 1 John 5, verses 6 through 8. The Bible says, and this is right after the account in verse 5 of 1 John 5, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, even Christ, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. You realize that this picture of blood and water was a picture of the very thing in which John writes about in 1 John 5. This was a perfect demonstration of the three in one. The three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, the water and the blood. This was to bear witness to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. The blood and the water from the Lord's side was a picture or a sign of the justification, the sanctification, and a picture of all that God is. Now we also know that these, this blood and the water from the piercing of his side is also a fulfillment of four particular scriptures and they're in varying degrees the first one is in exodus chapter 12 verse 46 exodus 12 verse 46 again varying degrees of fulfillment here but i think you'll see the connections between them exodus 12 verse 46 and this is a this is a reference back to uh the the breaking of the legs I mentioned that we would talk about that in just a moment. Exodus 12, verse 46. In one house shall it be eaten. Thou shalt not carry forth out, out, out of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall you break a bone thereof. Now remember, the Passover was a picture of the Christ that was to come. 
That's a prophecy that the bone of the perfect, the Passover, the perfect sacrifice, that his legs, not a single bone, would be broken. Psalm 34.20. Psalm 34.20. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Again, you're seeing the varying degrees of the breaking of the legs here and the piercing. Now here's Zechariah begins to talk about the piercing of the side. Zechariah 12, verse 10, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And then Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Revelation 1, verse number 7. John, as he's writing in this first chapter of the book of Revelation, says this, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. So the piercing of the side of our Lord was in a fulfillment of Scripture. His legs not being broken was a fulfillment of picture, a picture, a fulfillment of that scripture, rather, that prophecy. Yet we also see that with the water and the blood, we are also seeing a picture of the Godhead. We're seeing a picture of his witness that he is, in fact, the satisfaction before God. So Christ, we see here in that text, back in our text in John 19, we see here. In verse, 30, uh, verse uh, 35, And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. What's he speaking of? He, he that saw it bear record. Saw what? The spear that pierced his side and the blood and the water that came out. Why did that happen? His record is true. He knoweth that he saith true that ye might believe. This was a, a part that should lead us to understand that this, in fact, is that promised Messiah. When we think about the soldiers who pierced his side, we think about the soldiers who passed by and did not break his legs. We are not just looking at some weird coincidence. We are looking at the very fulfillment of Scripture. That's what it says in verse 36. For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, we just read this in Zechariah and in Revelation. And again, another Scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. All for what reason? That ye might believe. That ye might believe. Christ being dead upon the cross, having finished the entirety of the work, we are, we are shown a perfect picture of the satisfaction before His Father, and the true cleansing of the believer. That wound of the piercing in his side, that was the most revealed witness that Christ was in fact dead. Because once that, once that spear went into his side, 
The water, yes, that physically came out. The blood that came out from a medical perspective. Remember I told you that's part of it, but that's not the deeper part of it. From a medical perspective, that was evidence that that spear not only broke this very skin, but it went all the way to the very part that wrapped the heart. What was coming out was water and blood, which signified what needed to happen. Folks, don't miss this. Jesus Christ, in order to finish and accomplish the work, had to actually die. So remember, when we get to the resurrection, there are going to be all sorts of stories that are going to go about saying he wasn't really dead. He was only in a a deep sleep. The spear in the side gave proof that Jesus Christ was dead. That's why it mattered. Yes, from a medical standpoint, the water coming out guaranteed that that spear had struck a vessel that contained water. And any time that you did that, that person was so pierced and so stricken that there was nothing else that could happen but death. Isaiah said he was pierced. Zechariah said he would be pierced. Exodus and Psalms both said that a bone would not be broken. Revelation says when he comes again, every eye is going to see him, even those that pierced him. That's why this matters. His side was pierced according to Scripture, but his bones would not be broken. See how the hand of God and his providence carried out the very purposes of God, even down to a spear going into the side of our Lord. Friends, every line of Scripture is true. Every prophecy will be fulfilled. Our Lord fulfilled the prophecies of Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament, fulfilled the law. He finished the work. The work of redemption. He finished the whole work the Father had given Him to do. He finished the work of the righteousness which is required to stand before a holy God. He fulfilled all the Levitical law and all the types, all the ceremonies, all the pictures. He did accomplish all that was said of Him to do. Now as we think about this coming into next week and we think about what's going to take place next, we're going to see another promise. We're going to see the promise that Jesus Christ is going to be buried. He's going to be buried in a place, but He's not going to remain there. Again, the resurrection would give proof that Jesus Christ did in fact die. The resurrection is going to give proof that He did in fact raise from the grave. And yet we understand that before He even raises from the grave, the words, it is finished, are declared. Friends, I want us to understand something as we bring this to a close today. With that one word, finished, Satan, death, hell, the grave were defeated. Not partially defeated. Not somewhat defeated. Not temporarily defeated. But completely and utterly destroyed. Why does that matter? 
As I mentioned to you this morning, knowing all the truths we know about Christ, it's high time we stop living like we're defeated. It's high time we stop living as people who murmur and complain and say, listen, we serve a risen Savior who is at the right hand of God the Father, the very Father who's in, with His substitutionary death on the cross, He finished the work. Our Lord has already defeated our greatest foes. Whatever foe we face today, whatever enemy you face tomorrow, it's already been defeated. Now think about that for a moment. There is nothing you're going to face. There is no person, no thing, no affliction, nothing that has not already been defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, well, preacher, but life is hard. Life is extremely hard. Life is extremely difficult. It's filled with afflictions. It's filled with trials. It's filled with sorrows. It's filled with grief. But where is our source of hope? Our source of hope is found in those three very simple but the most powerful words that describe the entirety of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. It is finished. To me, that ought to sound like victory. Not, yeah, it's finished. I'm going to try to just I'm going to just try to bear with it. I'm just going to try to get along. I'm just going to try to I'm just going to try to live victoriously, but you know how hard it is. Listen, we ought to live in victory because we truly are on the victorious side. I would much rather having Lord God Almighty say it is finished than you and I trying to say it's finished. Because our words it is finished are just mere words. But His words, it is finished, are words that we can take heart and we can place all of our hope in. Today, the church, our church, we ought to be able to say the work of Jesus Christ is fully accomplished. Finished. We don't come bringing anything to add. We don't bring saying something needs to be taken away. We come and we say, Jesus Christ, His words said, it is finished. And we ought to live as if that is the truth. It is finished. I want to conclude this morning with our reading from the Valley of Vision.